Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. While you have your place marked there, I want to give you a, a completely different verse from the Bible. It's still in the New Testament to kind of raise the, I guess, our awareness of where we're going tonight. Um, I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 2 and it's verses 14 through 16 where Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. Uh, Listen to this uh, passage real quick. Paul says, But thanks be to God, okay, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Okay, so kind of get that imagery in your mind that here we are, we're thanking God, Uh, because He leads us in Christ. It's almost like a victory parade. And through us, this aroma of the knowledge of Christ can be, you know, distinguished everywhere we go. We're a walking billboard for Jesus. We belong to Him, right? But then check it out. It says, the next verse, For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? You know, being a child of God, you are going to let your light shine. If if you're intentional about following Jesus, you're going to be letting your light shine in this dark world. And there's going to be people that see it. There's going to be people that notice it. Some are going to be encouraged by it because they also are walking in the light. And uh, that's why uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Eddie Bell, years ago, uh, uh, mom, uh, he'd say, Corey, uh, he says, uh, I love working at Lowe's. He says, all these people come in. I get to talk to them. I get to talk to them about Jesus. And he says, every once in a while, he says, we have church. And I said, you have church? He goes, yeah. He says, I brought Jesus. They brought Jesus. We have church. I said, all right, Eddie, I got you. And, you know, when you run into other people that are walking in the light like you are, you know what I'm talking about. And then also that cuts both ways. Uh, we can be living out our lives before God and men, letting our light shine. And sometimes we can preach without saying a word and it can actually make some people that are living in darkness maybe uncomfortable. Uh, not that we're trying to do that. Um, there is a biblical basis for that. I know that... Um, I've thought about this before. This is not in my notes, so I guess I'm going uh, rogue on the computer up there. That's okay. Uh, But I'm thinking of a passage that um, is in Hebrews 11, and it is uh, verse 7, uh, Hebrews 11, 7. Listen to this. This is what I'm talking about. By faith Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. Now, if we stopped there, we'd go, oh yeah, yeah, I remember Noah, you know, by faith he obeyed God, he built the ark, right? But look at what it says next. It says, by faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, I don't think he went out there pointing the finger, you know, like, mocking them or whatever you want to call it, but his faith talked, okay? Actions speak louder than words. And because by faith, 
he did something. He obeyed God. He built the ark. By his faith, he condemned the world because he was preparing for what God was saying and no one else was. So what I'm trying to say is sometimes we can send a different message to the unbelieving world, not that we're even trying to. It's just the fact that we're people of light, not darkness, and light, well, it repels darkness. Does that make sense? And so it's more of, a, of an outcome uh, rather than something that we're intentionally trying to do. Tonight, we're going to look at this passage in Revelation, and once we get through with it, you're going to realize that we are bearers of a gospel that's bittersweet, okay? We have a message from God that is bittersweet. It's bitter to those who reject Christ, and it's sweet to those who receive Christ. We just want you to know, okay? So kind of get that imagery in your mind, and we will jump into Revelation. Now, there's something I want to point out before we just dive right into chapter 10, and that is, if you go back to the previous chapter, Revelation 9, uh, there's two things that happen in Revelation 9. We're in the middle of this seven trumpet cycle. You know, there was seven seals. There was a scroll with seven seals and all seven seals are open. And now there are seven trumpets and we're going through the trumpets one at a time. And in chapter 9, we had a fifth trumpet. And then in verse 12, chapter 9, after the fifth trumpet, the first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. Well, math was not my favorite subject, Kathy, but if we've got seven trumpets, right, and there are three woes, and the first woe came after the fifth trumpet, then that means the second woe should come after what? The sixth trumpet, and then the third woe would come after the seventh trumpet, right? Yeah, I would have missed that in multiple choice because that's not what happens here, okay? When you read what happens in the sixth trumpet, which is the second half of chapter 9, you would expect to read there at the beginning of chapter 10 or at the end of chapter 9, you would expect it to say, the second woe has passed and the third one's fixing to come. But you don't see that. Matter of fact, you don't see that until like chapter, I believe it's uh, 14, if my notes are right, it's 1411. Let me double check that, but I believe that's right. In 1411... Uh, maybe that's not it. Okay, never mind. Okay, I got something wrong on that. That happens from time to time. But it hasn't happened yet, so scratch that. <laughs> but uh, you don't see that yet. So you're going, well, wait a minute. Why, why is that not in there? Well, here's what I want you to see. There is a gap here in Revelation between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And we shouldn't be surprised because it kind of has happened already. And what do I mean by that? Because when we went through the seven seals, if you remember the seven seals early in Revelation, there was also a gap, okay, of material inserted between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And we're seeing the same pattern here. There's some more uh, stuff here that is brought up between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And so it's kind of like an interlude, a parenthesis, as some say. Now, why, why is this? Uh, I'm not sure. It's just the way it was written. Here it is. Uh, but we're going to look at it. I like what Dean Davis says. He says, the stage is set. 
We are ready to hear the seventh trumpet and see the third woe, but strange to tell, there's an unexpected interlude, or rather there's a prelude, and it's nearly two chapters long. It's all of chapter 10 and half of chapter 11. And uh, why? It's because Christ has something of great importance to tell the church about events that immediately precede the end. And so tonight, I'm going to make this uh, very simple. Um, the title of this is going to be The Mighty Angel and the Small Scroll. And my outline is real simple. We're going to talk about the mighty angel. And guess what? The small scroll. I just wanted to keep it very simple. You'll, you'll appreciate my simplicity very soon. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when that happens. So look, if you will, in Revelation 10, verse 1. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. And he held a little scroll open in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And I'll stop right there. Uh, there's more to come. Now, notice that it says there in the very verse first, then I saw another mighty angel. He didn't say, and then I saw a mighty angel. He said, another mighty angel, which means we've already seen a mighty angel. And you'll say, well, when did we see a mighty angel? In Revelation 5, verse 2. In Revelation 5, verse 2, you remember the scene in heaven. John is up in heaven, and he's seeing this heavenly scene and he sees this mighty angel in Revelation 5, 2, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So that is the first occurrence of a mighty angel. And now here in chapter 10, he says, and then I saw another mighty angel, mighty like the first one, but different because it's another, okay? Now, the big question before we go any further is, who is this mighty angel? Um, now, remember I told you I was going to keep this very simple and you would appreciate this? Well, now I want to stir the mud a little bit. Why not, right? Uh, I thought, and the more I prepared for this, I thought I've always wanted it to take a, a little bit of time when you go through a difficult part of Scripture and show people how frustrating it can be, okay? So for the next two, three minutes, I'm going to give you just a little taste of what it's like to be your pastor and you're really studying something and then you go to check yourself and you're like, I'm more confused now than I was when I started. Now I say that with a smile, but here's what I'm getting at. I want to give you, I'll play devil's advocate here. I'm going to show you that some say it's this and some say it's that. And the purpose of this exercise that I'm fixing to do is to show you that good and godly people can look at the same thing and see something completely different, okay? Uh, for, for instance, Warren Wiersbe. I'm a fan of Warren Wiersbe. Uh, you know, he, he went to be with the Lord, I believe, last year sometime, pre-COVID. Pre uh, maybe it was two years ago, but it's been recent, in the recent past, and it was before COVID uh, that he passed away. And um, Warren Wiersbe offers some compelling characteristics of this angel and he suggests that this angel could be Jesus. 
Now, just hang on. I'm going to put devil's advocate here. But Wiersbe says, first of all, he's mighty. He's strong. And then he says um, he has got a rainbow over his head. Well, previously in Revelation 4, the rainbow that we saw was around the throne of God. And now it's around this messenger's head, signifying authority by God. And then he says, and then look at the clouds. You know, Jesus, he left in the clouds. He's coming back in the clouds. And this angel is wrapped in a cloud. How many people do you see walking around wrapped in a cloud, right? And then he says the angel's face shines like the sun, which here's his compelling uh, evidence, which corresponds to the description of Jesus in Revelation 1, verse 16. And then he goes a little further and says, and the description of the angel's feet, okay, uh, what is it? Uh, like his legs are like pillars of fire. That corresponds to Jesus in Revelation 1, 15. And then the voice of a lion reminds us that Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah previously in the book. And then here's another piece of evidence, he says, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Many times what we call the angel of the Lord, some call a uh, theopony, um, a, um, a Old Testament appearance of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's examples of that in uh, different Old Testament passages, and he's saying he believes this is equivalent to that. And then he says, and what about the scroll in his hand? He says we learned in Revelation 5, where we previously had a mighty angel who said, who is worthy? They opened the scroll and, and its seals. Uh, here he is, and it's, it's open. You know, the scroll is, is, is open now. It's open in his hand. And he says the angel's stance is one of a victor or a conqueror who's taking possession of the territory. And so he's holding the title deed to earth, sea, and sky. Now, that's Warren Wiersbe, a godly man, Super sharp, gifted, knowledgeable, intelligent. Then, just to stir this up for you real good, let you feel feel my pain every once in a while. Uh, then you've got another respected um, um, Bible teacher out there, John MacArthur Jr. And John MacArthur says, uh, this is not Jesus. This is an angel, which in this instance, I would have to agree with MacArthur. It says... An angel. Now, some want to parse that down and say, well, really, in the Greek, it literally means messenger. So if it's a messenger, it could still be Jesus, says some, you know. But I, I do believe, MacArthur's right on this one, I do believe that this is an angel, a mighty angel at that. Here's what he says. He says the Greek word for another, remember it says another mighty angel? He says the Greek word for another uh, means another of the same kind. So it's a strong angel uh, like the ones that we've seen previously, but this one's stronger. He's a mighty strong angel. And then he also says anytime Jesus appears in Revelation, he's given a title. I mean, we recognize him. We're told, hey, here he is. You know, he is the faithful witness. He's the amen. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He is the lamb. And on and on and on it goes. And all we're told is a mighty angel. He says uh, other strong angels who are clearly not Christ appear in Revelation. Uh, and what he's alluding to there is there's a mighty angel in Revelation 5 that we've already pointed to. There's also a mighty angel in Revelation 18 verse 21. Um, 
Uh, MacArthur goes on to say that it's inconceivable that this angel is Christ uh, because of the oath that he makes. You know, the, he, he makes an oath. He swears by the one who lives forever and ever. So he'll be making an oath to himself. And, and he says that just doesn't make sense. Um, the angel came down out of heaven to earth. And he says, if this is Christ, that would be another coming. Would, would it not? You know, then we'd have to add a third coming, right? Instead of a second coming or more, more math, right? <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to throw that out there just to get your mental juices going that sometimes you can have some wonderful people. I respect both of those men, Wearsby and MacArthur. You can have some wonderful Bible teachers and you can whip out your commentaries and you go, all right, I can't wait to study this. And then they'll take something like an angel, okay? An angel. And then one will say, well, it's an angel, but it's a unique angel. And then another one will go, no, I think it's Jesus. And here's why. And then you go, really? Like, really? I mean, so it, it can be frustrating sometimes. It happens to the best of us. Um, I like what somebody said. Uh, Lewis Brighton said, whether this was from Christ in the guise of an angel or from the Lord Christ through an angel chosen for the role, it's still Christ who commissioned John. And you're going to see in the rest of the story that he is commissioning John. Okay, So let's not lose sight of the forest for the trees. Now, to give you maybe the, the, the whole gist of this, here's a good quote from Michael Kukendall. He's the uh, one I told you about that's written a real thick reference book. This guy's a professor at our seminary in California, Golden Gate Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. And um, he's taught Revelation for many years, and he takes all of the imagery in Revelation, okay, all of these images that are used, and he gives you really good synopsis of what he thinks it means based on all the stuff he studied. So when it comes to the mighty angel, here's what he has to say. He says, the mighty angels mentioned by John are high-ranking heavenly beings. Perhaps they're archangels who represent Christ. And they, their role is this. They deliver significant information at crucial points because a mighty angel is mentioned three times in Revelation. Chapter 5, verse 2, which we've mentioned. Chapter 10, verse 1, which we're studying. And then chapter 18, verse 21. He says the mighty angel appears as John's guide each time he arrives on the scene. It occurs at a key moment because a regular angel does not satisfy the import of the announcement or the actions. For example, in chapter 5, verse 2, a mighty angel, a, a mighty angel functions as a herald in the heavenly court when he announces to everyone there, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? That is a special moment. Then you fast forward to here, chapter 10, verse 1. He majestically brings revelation of the nearness of the end. You'll find out in his uh, little announcement here that the, the catchphrase, the tagline, the, 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 the thing we should not miss is he says there's going to be no more delay. In other words... Here's this moment between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. This mighty angel appears and says, all right, y'all, time's almost up. To put that in country boy lingo, it's like God says, <clears throat> here's your sign. Okay? Then he says this. He says, finally, in chapter 18, verse 21, 
his symbolic action of casting a millstone into the deep represents the fall of Babylon the Great at the end of history. So, a mighty angel appears at three crucial points in Revelation to deliver important information for John's vision. And I'm going, I like that. He nailed it, you know. But I just wanted to give y'all a taste of how frustrating it can be sometimes when you study the Word and you go, I'm not sure. These guys are smarter. Let's see what they say. And one says this and one says that. And then you go, ah, okay. Hope y'all didn't mind that little rabbit trail. All right, well, let's go on. So here is this mighty angel, and his voice is like a roaring lion, it says there in verse 3. And when he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, John says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. And I can explain this one very well, Charles. I don't know. We don't know because he, what, he was told not to write it down. Isn't that right? Um, we're, we, just, we just don't know. And so the seven thunders, uh, he wasn't allowed to share that. And then he says, the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And here's what he says. There will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Wow. I mean, you can just feel that hanging in the air, can't you? It's like, here we go, boys and girls. It's finally about time. And so that's, that's the beautiful part of this. You know, the seven thunders that we mentioned, Ku uh, Kendall said that... that um, it emphasizes the fact that God is in complete control. We don't know what we don't know, but he's in complete control. And this oath by the mighty angel that we've just read, it alludes to something that's happened before. And you might say, what are you talking about? It kind of takes us back to the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. Now, what does Daniel 12, verse 7 say? Well, Daniel, at the end of his book, in chapter 12, verse 7, wrote, Then I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands toward heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and half a time when the power of the holy people is shattered and all these things will be completed. And that's a little bit of a teaser for what we'll study next week when we get into chapter 11. Because quite honestly, this parentheses or whatever you want to call it that we're given here that John saw and experienced between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, uh, it was just too much to do all at once. So we're doing chapter 10 tonight. Uh, I like what Dennis Johnson said. He said, the consummation of history 
brings deliverance to the church and destruction to its enemies. And that's a good way just to, just to put it out there. Okay, plain and simple. When, when history comes to a conclusion, the church will be delivered and the enemies of Christ will be destroyed. But let me back up. So this oath that this mighty angel declares here in Revelation 10, it reminds us of what I just read in Daniel 12, verse 7, uh, a similar thing. An angel above the waters raises their hands to heaven and swears by him who lives forever. It's definitely similar there. And the continuation of the oath explains further how the meaning of the oath from Daniel is altered. If you read the Daniel prophecy, the end of chapter 11 and, and most of chapter 12 in Daniel, it talks about the end time suffering of God's people, God's destruction of the enemy, the establishment of a kingdom, and the reign of his saints. And all of this would conclude history, the consummation of history. The angel told Daniel that the meaning of the prophecy was sealed up to the end time, and then it would be revealed. And now, as a contrast here uh, in Revelation 10, there's an emphasis on when and how this prophecy will be complete. In other words, he says, and I quote, there will no longer be a delay, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet. So when is this going to happen? When the seventh angel blows his trumpet. What will happen? The mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. And that's why we're going back to one of them, Daniel, just to connect the dots. So that's kind of cool if you think about it. When the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, this prophecy will be fulfilled and history will come to an end. Hallelujah. All right. So that's why I say the consummation of history brings the deliverance of the church and destruction of Christ's enemies. Well, that is the mighty angel. And what a message he has. That there will no longer be a delay. But when the seventh trumpet happens, that's it. Now, I like that, and I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but that's why I think when someone has a total, complete, linear view of Revelation, things break down. Because when you get to the seventh trumpet and you read what happens at the seventh trumpet, that's it. You know, cl close the curtain, play the music, duh, 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 that's all, folks. Okay? And then you have good, godly Bible scholars, you know, just like MacArthur and just like Wearsby that throw in all kinds of theories as to why did that happen there and not at the very end of the book, right? And I won't get into all that, but just want you to know there's a lot of twists and turns as we navigate Revelation. So anyway, don't miss the obvious. We now have a second mighty angel. The first one said, who's worthy to open the scrolls? And that's when we realize there's only one, right? And that's Jesus. Now at this point, in the journey, we have another mighty angel, and it comes between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, and he says, there ain't no more delay. It's almost up. Time's up. Here we are. Now we have the scroll, and that's exciting too. Look what happens with this scroll. This scroll, it's little, and it's open in his hand. And in verse 8, it says, 
Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, this is John talking, and said to him, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so, John says, I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And John says, Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they, notice it says, And they said to me, You must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. Wow. Now, an eating of a scroll. Does that sound familiar? Well, probably one of the least read books for me in the Bible, and I have read through the Bible a couple times in, you know, in, in, my, in my life, but as far as just go-to place, you know, in Bible, I've got my favorites in the new, I got my favorites in the old, but you'd have to go to the prophet Ezekiel. Now, I know, you read Ezekiel, and there's a lot of things going on in his book, but uh, in Ezekiel chapter 2, this reminds, John's experience reminds us of Ezekiel's experience. Uh, let me read that for you. Ezekiel chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, the Lord is talking to his prophet Ezekiel. He says, And you, son of man, listen to what I tell you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. There you go, right? Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. So I looked and I saw a hand reaching out to me and there was a written scroll in it. Hello, he's fixing to eat a scroll. See, this has happened before, right? And when he unrolled it before me, it was written on the front and the back, words of lamentation, mourning, and woe were written on it. And then it jumps to Ezekiel 3, because that's the end of Ezekiel chapter 2. And in Ezekiel 3 verse 1, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find here, eat this scroll, and then go and speak to the house of Israel. And so he says, I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill your belly with the scroll I am giving you. So I ate it, and it was sweet as <clears throat> honey in my mouth. A lot of parallels, isn't it? Now, not only do we have a situation where he is receiving a scroll from God to eat, so is John, he's God's angel, he's receiving a scroll to eat, and not only does it taste like honey in his mouth, like Ezekiel's, then you say, well, what about the, the bitter taste in the stomach or whatever that... Um, that uh, John experienced. His stomach came bitter. Well, it doesn't explicitly say it in Ezekiel, but there sure is a hint. You know what that hint is? Yeah, he ate that scroll and it tasted like honey in his mouth. But what was written on it? Words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. Ugh. Sounds like a bad aftertaste to me. So, at any rate... That is definitely a parallel between what's happening with John here in Revelation and what happened to Ezekiel. 
So the similarities are obvious, and it's a symbolic way of describing him being commissioned, just like Ezekiel was. Now, there are differences. Like I said, bitterness is not explicitly mentioned in Ezekiel's story, but it's certainly hinted at with the words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. And another distinction is Ezekiel was sent to the rebellious house of Israel, okay? And that's what God told Ezekiel. He called his own people a rebellious house. And he said, Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to the rebellious house of Israel, and you're going to tell them what I say, but they're not going to do it. You know why? Because, well, I told you they're rebellious, okay? Yet here, here he's giving John a scroll to eat, and uh, it's being enlarged, if you will, the audience. The audience is not necessarily Israel. What does he say? You must prophesy, verse 11, about many people, nations, languages, and kings. So the audience is very, very, very broad. So that reminds me of Ezekiel. If you go way deep into Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, uh, we see a little bit of God's heart. He says to his prophet, Tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? You know, some people don't like it when preachers preach uh, repentance or hell or judgment. But can I tell you, that's part of the message, okay? And the reason why it's in the Bible is because he warns us. He doesn't want anyone to die uh, as a sinner and go to hell. Matter of fact, Jesus talked more about hell. If you read the Gospels, he talked more about hell than anybody. And he knew what was at stake, so it makes sense. So, at any rate, I like what one um, commentary said. They said, whatever the particular nuance for the prophet in this vision, the essence of the sweetness and bitterness metaphor is the great joy of salvation on one hand, and the anguish for those who refuse to believe on the other. Chuck Swindoll said something good here. He says, just like John, you and I have roles to play in God's ultimate plan. We can't call ourselves apostles, and we don't receive literal visions and revelations from God. We're not required to swallow prophetic books or, scro or scrolls to utter inspired words, but each of us has been given a crucial mission to share the good news of salvation with the world. And yet, just like John, we must first internalize the message so it can become part of us. And literally, that's what happened. He had to eat it and digest it, didn't he? You know, we might be the only Bible that somebody else ever reads. And like I mentioned at the beginning tonight in 2 Corinthians 2, when Paul was saying that we are the aroma of Christ. To those who are perishing, it's an aroma of death. But to those who are saved, it's a pleasing aroma to God. 
you know, you and I as children of God, as followers of Jesus, we exert an influence, a fragrance, if you will, for God. And it should have a positive effect on those around us. And please understand that this message that we share, this gospel that we believe, it is bittersweet. You might say, well, what do you mean bittersweet? Well, the bitter part is you got to understand, Jim said this, you got to understand the bad news to appreciate the good news. Isn't that right? You've got to understand the bad news of condemnation. All people have sinned against God, and therefore all are guilty before God. And when we stand before God, and, and there's His law written on the wall, so to speak, we're condemned as charged. We're guilty as sinners, and we will get what we deserve, which is death and hell. And you can't dispute that. Then, if we understand the bad news of condemnation, that we're guilty as a sinner before a holy God, then we finally have the opportunity to appreciate why the good news, well, it really is good news. That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. And so the good news is salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's the sweet part of the message. That's what makes us smile. That w that's what makes us say, praise God, I'm so glad, glad He saved me. And so we really do have this bitter, sweet message that we need to be willing to share. And um, share it we will until we can't share it no more. I mean, one thing we know when we read the Gospels is that, you know, well, when we read the New Testament, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Well, first of all, Peter said, God's not willing that any should perish, all right? And so his delay, the delay of his return, every day longer we have to wait until Jesus comes, is another day, another opportunity for somebody in the world to get right with God before it's too late. And Jesus said in the Gospels that this Gospel must be preached to what? All nations, and then what? And then the end will come. Now what does that tell us? He wants every single person to have as many opportunities possible before that angel, the mighty angel, says... <clears throat> Time's up, boys. The seventh angel is about to blow the seventh trumpet. That's all, folks. So let us be thankful that if we're still here and Jesus hadn't come back yet, what does that mean that we should do? There's a, I wish I could remember the guy's name. I've got his book in my office on a shelf somewhere, and I can't remember his name. But I got to meet him several years ago and heard him speak. This guy goes around the country, and he, he's an evangelist. He just he preaches to everybody. He don't even have to go to a church to preach. He'll just go on the street. He'll preach. Um, he's written a book called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And he, this guy, like I said, I can't remember his name right now, but he actually played college basketball 
with Charles Barkley at Auburn University back in the day. And through his relationship with Charles Barkley, he eventually got to meet Michael Jordan. And he says, I shared the gospel with him, but that's it. He says, pray for Mike, you know, and that was years ago. And so this guy has this book and it's called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And that's really the giveaway, isn't it? What is the one thing that we can do here and now that we can't do in heaven? Yeah, witness, right. Witness to the lost. Because we can't do it in heaven, why? Because there ain't no lost people in heaven. And so as long as we're here and Jesus hasn't come back yet, guess what that means? We need to share the gospel with people who need to know him. And that's where I want to leave uh, things right now. And next week, we'll, we'll get into chapter 11. We'll finish this parentheses, okay? This, this vision that is inserted between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And we'll get there, okay? We'll get there. So my challenge for you tonight is to simply say, will you trust and follow Jesus? And it's my prayer that you will. And for those of you who said, yes, I am, and I, I do every day by God's grace, then my second question is, are you willing to be a faithful witness? Be a faithful witness to Christ until He returns. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before You tonight. Thank You for this word from the Word. Lord, thank You for this reminder that when this mighty angel shows up and, and gives us this simple, powerful message that there will be no more delay that you are coming, that we might be reminded of what we're here for and that we might be faithful to serve you and to be your witness until the very end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.